This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. We do chat about finances a reasonable amount on the show. Your your money, government money, corporate money, whatever it is, because it's something that's fascinating, something that affects us directly in every area of our life. It really does. Even even if you don't want to be someone who is entirely wrapped up in money, who doesn't want to be completely consumed by money, it still isn't. Uh, it's a very relevant thing. And it's also at times a little confusing, and that's why we're doing it again today, because you know, you remember that it wasn't that long ago, the Ontario government came up with their budget and said, yeah, we're going to stay in deficit this year uh, if we get reelected. It's going to be $6 billion roughly that we're going to run a deficit, but we have to do that because there's a lot of things that are really important to do. But don't worry, it's just $6 billion bucks, and we'll go from there. Well, then the Auditor General came out a week and a half, two weeks ago, and said, well, wait a second, hold on. No, no, no. It's not $6 billion. It's more like $11.5 billion. And then yesterday, a guy called the Financial Accountability Officer, who many of us probably have never heard of before, comes forward and says, no, 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 it's not 11 and a half, and it's not 6 It's going to be closer to $12 billion. And so you start thinking to yourself, do we, what's going on? What is the number? Who is telling the truth? Is this simply a difference of opinion? Is this a different version of accounting? Is it a political squabble? Is someone intentionally fudging the truth? Let's try and get to the bottom of this as best we can. Uh, go to the one person who I will turn to anytime there's a financial question to try and get to the bottom of it. That would be Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business, sir. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Before we get into this, uh, what is the financial accountability officer? Because I've talked to a bunch of people today who said, yeah, I've never really heard of him before. Well, I suppose it's like saying that a company has a, a chief financial officer, uh, independent. They're not a political appointment. They are independent, and they help the government work through the numbers. Uh, but they're also not an auditor. So that's, uh, an auditing is a separate function. You want someone totally at arm's length. This is a government employee, but it's his job. In, in the federal politics, we call it the... Uh, uh, what is it, the budget office, the prime minister's budget office or something like this. They're independent. It's their job to cost out the various proposals. And he has come up with very similar numbers to Bonnie Lysak, who is the auditor general. Now, I will point out that these numbers, you asked uh, what's causing all of this gap. The difference is really about reporting your consolidated numbers or your operating numbers. And so what the provincial government has been doing for years, and this goes even back to when the conservatives were in power, was they tallied up all kinds of government money and said, here we go, the bottom line is here's, here's what our deficit is. In the last five or six years, it's been the, the real operating deficit has been hidden because of pensious surpluses. That We have two pension funds that the province oversees, and they're both in a very positive situation. And they're saying you really shouldn't count that. That pension money is not available to you, provincial government. So this surplus position, although it's nice to know, you really shouldn't count it. So we're going to separate that out. And if we look at just your operations, well, operationally, you're running a deficit. So last year, for instance, when the government said they were balanced, no, operationally, you were really running a deficit of about $5 billion. I know when you add everything in together, it balances but it's not. So you take that $5 billion gap from last year, add it to this year, and that's really what the basis of the difference is. The Liberals say it's, a, it's an operating deficit of $6.5 billion. The, the Budget Office and now also the uh, uh, 
Um, auditor says, no, no, you have to add that other in, so it's really more 11 and a half. It, it is a little shifting. It's a little bit about angels dancing on heads of pins, but I think it's actually a truer picture to say, here's what my really operating deficit is. Maybe I'm being very naive, but should there not be some standard operating procedure that governments are required to run by so we yeah. don't have these kind of, as you say, dancing around? And I mean, it's they're not lying. They're just not really playing with the same numbers. You're, you're taking yeah. the same numbers to tell two different stories. Should there not be a something that says, okay, here's how you do it, and then we at least know what you're talking about? Right. And so for those people who want to say, well, you know, lying liberals, it's those lying liberals. Actually, if, this, if we had this conversation 10 years ago, both the, this budgetary office, this financial accountability officer, and the auditor said 10 years ago, report it that way. Report it all in. Don't separate it out. That's what your true budget number is. Part of that is because 10 years ago, pensions were in some trouble. And so some of those pensions were what we call underwater, meaning they were running a deficit. So look, if you really want to show the deficit picture of the province, you should include those pension funds. The minute the pension funds started to break even, and now they're in a surplus position, that's when the auditor and the accountability office changed their mind on this. And I don't actually blame Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals. They're saying, well, wait a minute, it was fine 10 years ago. What's changed? The auditor says, well, you know, 10 years ago we wanted you to show the deficits in those pension funds, but now that the pension funds are positive, we don't want you to do it. And that's where you get the discussion. But here's the other interesting thing, Scott. Uh, even if you want to lay this at the feet of the Liberals, the numbers that the NDP are telling you, and even to some extent the numbers that the PCs are telling you, start with the Liberals' numbers. So if the Liberals are out by $5 billion, then guess what? Everybody else is out by $5 billion too. That's why even though they say they want to get to the bottom of this and they're going to have some external auditor look at all of this, I don't think it's going to make a difference. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to afford their plans either. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Marvin Ryder about the dis- discrepancy that we are seeing between what the Kathleen Wynne Liberal government in the province says is the deficit and what the Auditor General and the Chief, uh, the Financial Accountability Officer say is the deficit. And Marvin, just before the break, you raised a, uh, I think it's a really important point, uh, like so many of yours are, that's why I have you on here all the time. But that is that if, that while the Liberals are basing their budget promises and their, their promises for the campaign and everything on the $6 billion, so are essentially the Conservatives and the NDP, and they've both made lots of promises too. That leads me to believe, as I, what I said right before the break, that when whoever gets into office at the end of this thing, whether it's the Liberals, whether it's the NDP, whether it's the Conservatives, we may well hear some very sobering words that things are way worse than we ever expected, and therefore many of the promises that we had thrown out there are just not going to be able to be done. Or not on the timeline that we said. We said we were going to do that immediately. We're going to have to wait and do that in the third year or fourth year, just before the next election ah. happens. Just, just before, but not right <laughs> away. Uh, and I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be glib about this either. I think these are people trying very hard to do their things. Just let me give you a different example. So uh, yesterday, Doug Ford came out and said that he's going to slash the Ontario budget by four percent. Now, that doesn't seem like all that much, 4%, but the Ontario budget is typically around $150 billion a year. So if he wants to slash it, he's going to have to find $6 billion in savings. 
at the same time that he says he's going to give a billion dollars to Hamilton with no strings attached, that he's going to you know, help uh, hospital wait times by giving hospitals more money. And I sit there and say, I don't, I don't see how this makes sense. And, of course, Mr. Ford hasn't released a platform, so we can't actually cost any of it. I will say this for the liberals. They've taken their lumps. Kathleen Wynne said we wanted transparency. Whether it's $6.5 billion or $11.5 billion, we know what her promises cost. We know what Andrea's promises cost. We haven't heard anything yet to really put a dollar sign on Doug Ford. You have said a number of times on this show, just to prove that I've been listening all those times, <laughs> you have explained why being in deficit positions for a government is not necessarily a disaster because sometimes you need to do things that will spur growth and if the amount of growth that you can spur eclipses the amount that it's going to cost you this could be a smart thing to do am i pretty close so far yeah yeah absolutely all right there we go okay see i could pass your course maybe yeah. maybe i get a c minus but oh, no. you know um however we do, even if we're spurring this growth, we do have to pay interest on this debt that we are accumulating still. That's right. And this, uh, the financial accountability officer, David West, the uh, chief economist, has pointed out that he can't see, regardless of who gets in based on these numbers, any way to do this without massive job cuts or massive tax increases. Is he wrong? No, I don't think he's wrong. Now, in fairness to both Bonnie Lysak, who's the auditor, and this financial accountability officer, by nature they are to take, uh, shall we say, rather conservative uh, assumptions about growth. Last year in economy, uh, our economy in Ontario was the fastest growing in Canada. We grew at around 3.5%. Now, look, if we could get the economy to continue growing at 3.5% a year, say for four or five years, then many of the promises by both the Liberals and the NDP wind up being affordable, and the big deficits that these two people are worried about aren't going to materialize. Oh, yes, there'll be some deficits to start with, but we'll get back to balance uh, more quickly. What these two people, the LISEC and, and the, the accountability officer, have done is they said, let's look at historical growth. And over the last 10 years, Ontario's economy wasn't growing 3.5% a year. It was growing more like 1.5% a year. If I use that number, that's where I get these big deficits, and I don't see us getting back to balance as a budget until at least 2025. And that's what scares these nice people. And I don't think it should necessarily not scare us as well. This is a very stark choice. You've heard a lot about austerity over the last 10 years. You saw it in countries like Greece and Italy and Spain. Do you want to have some austerity? And there are people, yeah, 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 I want to have austerity. But if you want austerity, then you're not going to get the, the nice uh, child care programs. You're not necessarily going to get waiting times reduced at hospitals. You're not necessarily going to get new schools built or an LRT. Oh, well, no, 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 I want that. I still want that. Well, these are the kinds of tough choices. And in essence, the Liberals and the NDP have decided to not make the very toughest of tough choices and have said if we wind up running a little deficit, well, you know, it's something manageable. Uh, I think it's like some people who buy a home and say, I'll never get out of debt, but the least the value of the home is going to go up over time, so when I sell it at the end, I'll still net a profit on the whole deal. I'll just never fully own it. In that sense, that's what they're doing here. They'll never get this debt fully repaid, but as long as it grows very slowly, we can still manage it. You are an economist, not a politician. Uh, however, would I be fair to say, uh, just as a general assumption, that if, let's say, the NDP wins this provincial election, the Conservatives and the Liberals will both, including the Liberals who are now poo-pooing these numbers from the Auditor General and from the uh, Financial uh, uh, 
accountability officer, they would both be pointing at this, saying that this is proof that the NDP is completely out of line with their numbers and vice versa. This does become a political tool. It always does. It always does. However, I think the Liberals, because they were most recently in power, will not use that tool quite so quickly. They'll wait. They'll wait for five years or something, then they'll bring it up again. The Conservatives, they're most likely going to be hammering this home over and over again. If you'd only shown restraint and elected us, you'd never see these kinds of wild, crazy numbers. Uh, and that, that's, you know, that's always one of those wonderful what-if scenarios. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Always appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Anytime. That is, um, oh, by the way, as a, uh, just as a number thing, because the chief, or the financial accountability officer, I'm going to get that right eventually. It's a new one for me. I hadn't heard of this much before. Uh, he says that there would require, to get things budget balanced by 2026, it would require $15 billion in the budget cut per year. $15 billion, which translates by his math to roughly 90,000 public service job cuts. So remember when Tim Hudak didn't win because he said we have to cut 100,000 public service jobs? This is this guy saying that's kind of what you're heading toward. Is he right? I don't know. But there's the numbers for you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. I stepped out of First Ontario Place, at First Ontario Centre, the arena, the other day. After a Bulldogs game, and as I was coming out, it was nighttime, I was crossing York Boulevard, and in front of the Salvation, you know where the Salvation Army place is there? There was, there was garbage everywhere. Now, I got to say, uh, I have a huge amount of sympathy for the men who are there. These are people, uh, and they're mostly men, these are people who in many cases are struggling with challenges in their lives that I don't have that I don't have to deal with whose lives are difficult, right? So it's not about, I'm blessed with, I'm blessed with good mental health. I think I'm blessed with no addiction. So I'm not mocking or insulting these people. I'm simply saying that when I crossed the street around that area, there was a mess. There was a lot of garbage. There was a lot of stuff laying around and it's not the only place downtown you're going to find garbage on the ground. Just take a drive around in the core. There's a lot of good things happening to get our downtown put back into place. There's a lot of things that are being repaired and upgraded and done like that. But it's not hard to find the places where you will find trash. For those who are starting a business downtown, for those who are spending their time, their money, their efforts to revive the core, this of course becomes a huge challenge. You want the area by your home or by your business or by whatever to look clean, to look inviting, to look good, not to look like a dump, but this is a struggle. There's no question this is a struggle. And one of the main problems is cigarette butts. Believe it or not, cigarette butts have become one of the, there's, there's all kinds of other stuff, but cigarette butts have become a huge problem. And the city at times has gone around and tried to do studies and tried to find where are the hot spots for, for littering and for that. And they have found all these places where their people will just dump their stuff, whatever it is. We, for whatever reason, we do this kind of thing. Well, now a new task force has been put in place. It's been there for a little while, involving some downtown business owners. And it has been pushing the city to begin looking into whether or not anything can be done about this. Because it's not really the role of the 
business owner to keep the publicly owned sidewalks clean. I mean, they will. They'll shovel the snow in the winter. They do that or whatever. But it's not really the job, I don't think, of the people who own the business to try and keep the area in front of their business clean. And so here we are. They they went to city council today, this task force, and essentially what they've been able to do is push the city. We're just waiting to get a hold of our guests, by the way. What they've been able to do is push the city to start looking into this. Is there any way that we can begin to clean up the city? Is there any way that things can be done to prevent this from going on? We have a city we should be proud of, and we are proud of. But what do you do? Can't The city has has bylaws in place. The city has things in place to do this. I don't know if you know this. You could actually be fined $275 for throwing a cigarette butt onto the ground. Now i got a question for you. Have you ever seen anybody ever stopped for throwing a cigarette butt on the ground? Have you once seen someone stopped by a bylaw officer, a police officer, anybody, and given a ticket for throwing a cigarette butt on the ground? I know I've never seen it. I know I've never seen it. I mean, I, there's all kinds of stuff that's on the books. Several weeks ago, we had someone, we were chatting with somebody from the bylaw office about the bylaws that are not enforced in this city. Well, this would certainly be one of them. Bylaws exist, but they're not being enforced. No one's doing anything about this. And so as a result, you end up with these business owners who are trying to do a, run a business and they are dealing with trash and everything else in front of their place. Cameron Todd is the owner of Saigon Soul Food on James Street South. He was one of the people who was a member of this task force. He joins me now. Cameron, thanks for doing this tonight. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, we've just been chatting at, about the amount of stuff that is being dealt with. When the task force went to city council and talked about this and the, the garbage, the refuse, whatever else, how big a problem is this? How, how much, I mean, when you go out there every day and you're in front of your business, how big an issue does this really become? Well, I, I think, Scott, this is the, the kind of thing, it's a really insidious issue. It's not that, you know, there's, it's not, uh, you know, litter that's uh, six feet tall. It's cigarette butts that are stuck in cracks of sidewalks and all over properties all over the city. Uh, it's not just downtown Hamilton. It's everywhere, but it's where people congregate and obviously where smokers are and feel like it's okay to flick their butts. And the, so they're, they're everywhere. Everyone can see them in the city when you walk anywhere. And the problem is to remove them is hard. And what makes it so insidious and you know, important for us to consider is that the perception right in, a, in our downtown core, when people come to the downtown, there's, it's so much more apparent than when they're walking at home, perhaps, sure. where there's not as much urban stuff. And they see it as representative of something much bigger, as in it's a mess, it's dirty, it's whatever. They, they actually, on surveys that downtown BIA has done, is what people's lack of attraction to downtown is primarily focused on graffiti and the cigarette butts all over the place. Hmm. That's what they're seeing that's, that, that's actually repelling them. And it all does, things, it, and first impressions, right? I mean, it's, it's that thing. Yeah. You see this, that's what you get as that's what's burned into your head as the impression of downtown. Yeah, yeah, and they might not... It might not be front of mind when they're thinking about downtown later, but when they're actually in the downtown, 
And they're being asked by, you know, students who are doing surveys as to what is it exactly, why are they saying this right now? That's what they, they, they at that moment, they tell you, this is what is. This is what's causing me to feel this way. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Cameron Todd. Uh, Top from uh, Saigon Soul Food, downtown business, James Street South, great business, great restaurant, but a guy who's on the task force who is dealing with some of the litter that is going on in the downtown that creates an eyesore, creates work for them, creates work to try and keep the place looking nice. And Cameron, we were talking just before you came on a couple of minutes ago, there are bylaws in place that would allow the city to do something about this. Have you ever, though, heard of anyone getting a ticket for this? Well, Scott, uh... I'm not sure of how old you are, but when I was a kid, uh, enforcing a littering bylaw was a big deal at, at that time because it was, I guess, socially acceptable by some people to, to chuck their, you know, wrappers of this or whatever out of their car, out of their pockets, and, and that became a thing. Now, it's just not acceptable socially for anybody, nobody thinks it is, to throw your, whatever your garbage on the ground. It's just, it's just not, not on, right? Except, no one for, except for one thing. Exactly. Except for one thing, and I have smokers who are who are great conscientious people. It's certainly not all smokers. When they finish their their smoke, they squeeze off the the tobacco on the end of the butt, and then they put the the filter into their own uh, cigarette pack to, to throw it later when they get home. Or there's very simple accessories that slide onto cigarette packs that have. Uh, you know, an anti-flammable element to them, they can put in the, the butt in there. And they don't have to toss them anywhere. But the thing is, that's so crazy. And the Public Works Department has done studies on this here in Hamilton. And it's, it's well known amongst the city staff and other cities, apparently, as well, is that smokers, they'll walk across the street, walk across the street with two different kinds of litter, and they'll separate their, their recyclable and then their paper into another proper bins, and then they'll finish the cigarette and flick it on the street. <laughs> it's true. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's true. And I've never figured it out, and it never really dawned on me until really today when you get enough of a, a density of this, it really does become a mess. It really does become a mess. But again, to go back, have you ever, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that there was a time, A, when it might have been considered okay to be even driving your car along the highway and just chuck your bag out the window, uh, but we don't do that anymore. But have you ever seen any or heard of any person falling victim to the city bylaw that could stop this from happening? Well, I've been on this uh, task force for almost three years now. Um, it has been a source of frustration uh, for me, uh, hearing uh, too often from um, a liaison officer that, that uh, uh, telling me that bylaw unfortunately doesn't have resources to do many things. Um, that's frustrating. I understand resources are scarce everywhere, um, but specifically with litter, um, I was told very directly that there is absolutely no resources or time spent enforcing any kind of littering bylaw. So whether it's cigarettes or anything else, bylaw enforcement officers are not directed to look that way. They've got other priorities. 
And you know what's so ironic about that is I can remember it was not that long ago, a couple months ago, maybe three months ago, that there were some uh, drive through restaurants where garbage was starting to pile up because garbage pails, I guess, had been taken away. And it was at city council that a councillor came forward with a motion to create a bylaw that would require the private businesses to get rid of their garbage because it was becoming an eyesore. And here you've got garbage on public land and you can't get anything done. Well, and I think this is a big part of the problem here, Scott, is... We, we as taxpayers, we are paying city staff. There is full, there's, I think, one full-time guy downtown that spends his time having to pick up litter all over downtown. Other public work staff, it's part of their job description from time to time. So we're paying directly to get rid of other people's garbage through as a taxpayer. Then private, private businesses, we spend tons of time cleaning the crap up out front and as I, as I, I think you mentioned uh, earlier, this cigarette butts are not like other litter. You cannot just sweep them up. The city, even the city, has specialized equipment to deal with, you know, small litter. And cigarette butts, most of the time, have to be picked up individually by hand. So I'm sick and tired of having to reach down and pick up a cigarette butt that someone else has chucked. It's not hygienic. It's, it's, you know, the city staff have told me they, they hate doing it. And there's the, the onus on this should not be for private property owners or city staff to be picking up other people's garbage. It should be the individuals taking responsibility to not do it in the first place. We only have about 30 seconds left, but would it work? Do you believe, now you just touched on the fact that people will cross the street to throw their their water bottle out and then dump a cigarette butt on the street. If the city were to put cigarette butt pails or whatever around the city, would that work? Do you think people, is it just a relearning? Is it a re-education thing or would people ignore them? No, I think it's just, it's exactly the same as when we, Hamilton made a decision that would not be smoking in public parks. It took very little effort on the part of enforcement officers uh, to make that happen. They went around to public parks. They confronted individuals who were smoking. They told them, hey, if you do, if, if, if uh, in three months from now, if we see you, you're going to get a big fine. And everyone was, you know, the, the, the individual would be like, oh, okay, I guess there's no, I didn't know there was no smoking in parks. Nobody smokes in parks anymore. Nobody smokes near arenas anymore. It was easy. And had a long conversation with Councillor Farr over the years about this, and he is certain that if it has been directed by council, which it just was unanimously, that by law, make some effort on this, this will happen in short order. We will let's let's hope so because you know as I say people like you you're working hard and I admire that and you have your business and you're trying to make it good and you're trying to make it work in the downtown or wherever else and this is not something you need to be dealing with it's not something you should have to deal with. Camera top owner of Saigon Soul Food on James Street South. Uh, after you're done listening, why don't you go down and try it? Cause it's a great place. Cameron, thanks for the time today. Thank you, Scott. It is that that is a it is a huge problem. Imagine just if this was all in your driveway. Somebody just came along and got out of their car in the middle of the night and dumped their cigarette, their ashtray in your driveway. You would be seriously ticked off. Well, it's the same thing, essentially. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. I am admittedly admitting to everybody, uh, not that I need to because anyone who has seen me understands this, I am not a fashion plate. I am not someone who 
is really strong in the fashion game. I don't, I don't, I've never understood the whole fashion show thing. I, I, you know, I want to look, I want to be clean. I want, I don't want to walk out of the house smelling, but I've never, I've just never spent a ton of time or really wanted to invest most of my disposable income in fashion. If you do, that's great. That's cool. But that's not me. So this next story as a result, because of where I'm coming from, maybe you're in the same boat as me, maybe not. But this next story really baffles me beyond most things. This is one that I just simply don't understand. A, the source, and B, the buyers of this. Okay? Because there is a company that is selling jeans now for $168. Now, just to go to buy a pair of jeans alone, some of you listening go, huh, 170 bucks doesn't sound like an exorbitant amount to pay for a pair of jeans. Yeah, it does. Yes, it, it really is. That's a lot of money to pay for a pair of jeans. I understand if you're a multimillionaire, fine. But $170 for a pair of jeans is a lot of dough. But these are not just your everyday, ordinary, average jeans. Because we've had, over the years, we've had you know, regular Levi's. And then we've had, remember in the eighties, we had acid wash jeans and we now have the jeans with the ready-made, I, I sound really so non-fashion conscious when I do this, but nonetheless, we have the jeans that have the ready-made tears in them and the holes and all the rest. The, the, the seriously worn in jeans, the one that looked like you actually got, got, stuck in a combine or something on your way to work and survived, but your jeans didn't. So you know what I'm talking about. We've gone through this whole, I mean, every era, every generation has a different style of jeans. Jeans are the common denominator, but we find different ways to personalize and individualize and generationalize our jeans. We've had loose jeans. I remember back again, back in the eighties, it was kind of loose jeans that you wanted to have. And we had really high waist jeans and you had, uh, 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 Jordash jeans. You had, you had, uh, uh, what's her name? Who was the, um, I'll think of her name in a second. Nothing comes between me and my, whatever it was. And you have skin tight jeans now that look like they're cutting off circulation half the time. And if a guy is wearing them, I won't say what I was going to say. Anyway, my point, $168 jeans are now being sold and that's us. So figure out what the translation is. And these jeans, people are buying these. They have, well, essentially they've cut out all the jeans. They are jeans without the jeans. They took a pair of jeans, I guess, washed them a hundred times or whatever to soften them up and make them look worn. They left the hip, the waist part. So you actually have something that you can put around your waist with the belt and the fly, but then cut, cut out all the material on the thigh down to the knee and from the knee down to the ankle. And then the back as well on both legs. So basically you've got a little bit of material along the side where the seam is on the inside and the outside and a little piece across the knee and you've got a top and you've got pockets. But if you were not wearing some kind of shorts underneath, you would probably be arrested for wearing these. These are fully exposing jeans. There is essentially no fabric left in this design. 
They're called extreme cutout jeans. There is no fabric left, and yet we will now pay. Ben, have you got this up on your screen now? Have you found these? Yeah, and uh, what are people thinking? It's like a skeletal pant. It's a skeletal. It's the foundation of a pant, basically, with no actual pant there. But the less material, the more we can charge, apparently. Now, I don't spend any time, to be honest, in places like Victoria's Secret. I re- I. But it's always dawned on me there, too. The slighter, the less of material there is, the higher the cost. This is the extreme of that. There is nothing left of these jeans. It looks like it is, as Ben says, the skeleton of a jean, and it's $170. And what I don't understand is who are the suckers who are actually going to buy this, who are going to think, yeah, this is really cool. This, to me, is the this is the literal story of the emperor's new clothes where you pay a lot of money and there is nothing there. I thought it was only a fictional allegory. It is not. It is a real thing. The Emperor's New Clothes exists in 2018 in these jeans. My favorite thing is also, it it says, uh, according to the extreme cutout jeans, uh, their makers have described them as a high-rise pant with large statement cutouts on front and back. Yeah, large statement cutouts is correct. The, they're all cut out. There's nothing left. Go look them up. They're called extreme cutout jeans. You tell me if you would pay $170 for a pair of those. Plus tax, plus Canadian exchange, 200 bucks for a pair of nothing. I don't know what. I, I, someone's going to buy them. And when you see someone walking down the street wearing these someday, just shake your head. Just shake your head and know that they've got more money than brains. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. This is a very busy night, a very important night for two Hamilton sports teams. At least two. Two that we know of. One of them is the Hamilton Bulldogs. They are in Sault Ste. Marie this evening, about to drop the puck on the OHL championship. And by the way, let me tell you a little story. You can go, Terry Pekoski, who works at The Spectator with me, who also works in the sports department, covers the team. She's up in Sault Ste. Marie. And throughout, we over the year, she and I, the last few years, she and I have done a podcast once a week. Well, during the, the finals here, we're doing a podcast every day. You can find that on Twitter. You can go to Radley at the spec. You can go to Terry, T-E-R-I, Terry at the spec. You'll find that. But if you find today's podcast, you will hear her tell a bit of a tale because she was trying to get up to Sault Ste. Now, to Sault Ste. Marie last night. I don't know how many people travel to Sault Ste. Marie. I, I, I hear it's a lovely place. We're not going to slam any cities. In the, we're, you know, even competitively, we're not going to do that. I hear Sault Ste. Marie is a lovely place, but I have no idea how many people actually travel there. But she decided to take the last flight last night up to Sault Ste. Marie in order to cover the series that begins tonight and also is on Saturday. Got on the plane at downtown uh, Toronto Island Airport, flew to Sault Ste. Marie, but when they were about to land, when they were circling, about to begin their descent to land at Sault Ste. Marie, apparently, I guess, something happened with the equipment. The plane had an equipment malfunction. And they couldn't or they didn't want to land it in Sault Ste. Marie because then the plane might be stranded there and all the fixers for this airline are back in Toronto. So they're over Sault Ste. Marie. They turned around and flew all the way back to Toronto, changed planes and flew all the way back up to Sault Ste. Marie. So she got there at like 2 in the morning this morning when it should have been an hour and 20-minute flight. Stuff happens. Stuff happens when you travel for work. Sometimes it's not so bad. 
Other times, it's it's not so good. But anyway, she's up there. Uh, it is apparently, I just chatted with her by text before we came on. She was going to join us for a couple of minutes on the line to set up the situation and give us the lay of the land up in Sault Ste. Marie, what's been going on. There's a small problem, however. Apparently, the arena there is so loud right now that she is... She said, I'm not going to be able to do an interview. I won't be able to hear anything you're asking me. It is a smallish, low-ceilinged arena there, and apparently it is pretty uh, pretty outstandingly, enormously loud. N- not, at the, not at this exact moment. It appears they're having a moment of silence at, to start this thing, I, I'm guessing for Humboldt. I would, that's just a guess. But the rest of the time, it is a loud, loud barn. So that's going on tonight. We'll keep you updated. If anything happens before we go off the air tonight, if there's any score, if there's any updates, uh, we will let you know about that. The other thing that is going on, however, in the city, the other sports team that has a big night going on is the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And down at Tim Hortons Field right now, we find our own Rick Zamperin. Rick, how are you tonight? Hey, good. How are you, Scott? I am doing well. So the CFL draft is, uh, well, based on their website, has not yet started, but we are... On pins and needles, waiting for the Thai Cats to make their first pick. Uh, it has not started yet, has it? They have not made that pick. No, eight, eight o'clock. Although, okay, yeah, it'll be a little bit after eight. And what we're hearing right now, they they made some moves yesterday that they were that to move up to get the first overall draft pick, and lots of questions because they gave up a really good lineman to get this. They gave up Brian Bombin, who's a, a good player for the Thai Cats. What were they trying to get? Who is out there that they desperately wanted to get with that first overall pick that you're hearing? Well, there's two schools of thought on this issue, and I'll tell you, uh, I'll give you both scenarios, and then I, I'll tell you what my gut is telling me on which scenario is going to pan out. Number one, you get rid of a three-time CFL East All-Star in Ryan Bobbin, a, a guy who's still young at 30, a Burlington native, great community and team guy. Uh, and, and a heck of a football player to boot. <clears throat> you shed his nearly $200,000 uh, per year salary uh, to draft uh, potentially tonight an offensive lineman. Now, whether that's uh, Ryan Hunter, who's listed number one in the CFL Scouting Bureau. From where? where? Where does he go to school? He's out of Bowling Green, and he's from North Bay. Okay. Uh, you have uh, Trey Rutherford, a highly touted guy out of Connecticut, uh, a Markham boy. Uh, you have David Neville. Uh, who was at one time ranked number one in the in the scouting bureau uh, list uh, out of Nebraska, you know, a uh, world-famous school in the NCAA. He's a Branford kid, so you're getting a little closer to home. Or you go, and I'm not necessarily saying this is off the board, but you go away from the offensive line and you go with Mark Chapman, who is a receiver at Central Michigan from Port Huron, Michigan. But because his mom was born in Sarnia or from Sarnia, he is eligible to be drafted as a Canadian. So those are the two scenarios. Either they go offensive line or they go with this highly touted receiver in Mark Chapman. My gut is telling me if you move a, a, a an Eastern All-Star in Bombin, you're moving from number two to number one. And I know there was other draft picks involved with the Montreal trade yesterday. But because there's a glut of offensive linemen who can go anywhere from really one to seven, maybe even the complete first round, I think they take the receiver and Mark Chapman because they know drafting sixth overall as well, there's going to be an offensive lineman there that they can uh, either plug in in year one or, or develop in the years to come. So I think the receiver, Chapman, is going to be uh, taken number one overall. I, I probably shouldn't do this, but every time you say Mark Chapman, I think of Mark David Chapman. That, that's a different guy. 
<laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> just, just to be clear. Yeah. Uh, now, will he, here's the question about him, though, and this is always the question, when you take someone, he is, he has the Canadian mother, but he is not a Canadian, and the question always becomes, will he report? You don't want to take a first overall draft pick and have the guy decide he doesn't want to play in the CFL. Is he a guy who's coming to the CFL? Well, there's a possibility. I believe he's attending a free agent camp with the New York Jets, uh, and I guess there's always a possibility that he can, you know, stick with them. Uh, and that's always the fear, and that's always, you know, one of the wild cards in the CFL draft is some of these guys that are taken first overall or seventh overall or whatever the case is, not only have those aspirations to go to the NFL, but some of them do in fact go there, whether it's on practice rosters or cracking, uh, you know, the, 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 the lineups uh, from week to week. Uh, it's a crapshoot because you're not 100% sure if they have aspirations of the NFL. David Neville's another guy, you know, the, the, the Brantford kid who played in Nebraska wants to play in the NFL. And can you blame them? I mean, the disparity in uh, the salaries is astronomical. So if you can, if you can do that and you can succeed, make some money, uh, you know, go for it. Well, you just mentioned that they got rid of Bauman and his two hundred thousand dollars salary, yeah. which would probably be about two fifths of what he would get on a practice roster down in the NFL. So oh, what, when yeah, you so when you talk about what these guys who want to go and play in the NFL, absolutely, it makes all kinds of sense that uh, that they would do that if they could. It is also though, and so what we see sometimes, maybe more than sometimes, is the best player is not always the first draft pick. Correct. Yes, because that NFL, uh, you know, carrot is is out there, and you not necessarily uh, want to take that guy if you know that he's going to be gone for two or three years. Because, uh, you know, in that time, you could be develop, developing that individual to the Canadian game, even if he's he is an American like Chapman, uh, who is not accustomed to the three down game. Those three years are really wasted time, and now you have to play a lot of catch up with these guys who are just getting familiar with the uh, the Canadian rules. The only other league in sports that I can think of, really, that has this situation where you don't always take the best player would be in baseball, and that's mainly because some guys, they what they're expecting to sign for is just so much that teams shy away because they don't want to spend millions and millions and millions. This is a different reason, but still, you it, it does complicate the situation here considerably for, for CFL general managers. Do, do you believe that when you've got the first overall draft pick and you've known, now not for a long time, for 24 hours, but it's still enough time to make some phone calls, do you believe that the Ticats, before they take a guy, will be very, very confident that the guy is coming, that they will have touched base with him, or will they be rolling the dice? I think there's always a little bit of a rolling of the dice. Uh, I think that having that sixth overall pick as well is a little bit of insurance. So whether they've talked to guys like Chapman or Rutherford or Hunter or, or whatever, uh, whether they are 100% honest or, or just left it as, you know, I'd love to play in the CFL, but, you know, I do have this great opportunity. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens. I think the Ticats, you know, in this scenario, especially looking at their national receiver content, you have guys like Shamad Chambers, who I think is going to be a starter. But beyond him, you know, Mike Jones is there. Uh, Giovanni Aprile, who hasn't really, you know, cracked uh, the lineup over the past few years. Uh, Felix Faubert-Lossier, I mean, guys who are more secondary depth, even special teams guys. And if you can add a guy like Chapman who can maybe bounce right into the starting lineup as a Canadian at a skilled position, I think that's uh, I think that's a good get. And I think I'm not even sure it would be a reach at this point because, A, it fills a need, and, A, it boosts uh, you know, a significant portion of, uh, of your skilled position. 
when you're in the CFL draft, when teams are in the CFL draft, are they drafting for right now or are most teams drafting for two or three years down the road? Because that's also can affect what you are trying to do depending on what team you are. I mean, Hamilton Hamilton was an odd team last year. They started 0-8. They were atrocious. Kent Austin leaves. June, Joan come, June Jones comes in. They were better. I don't know if you really know if they are a contender this year or not. So I don't know if you really are thinking we got to have a guy who can step in and play immediately or if you think we're a year, we can give a guy a year. If you're a Ticats GM, if you're the Ticats GM, how are you looking at this draft? Do you want immediate or do you want prospect? Well, I guess that depends on draft to draft, and it really depends on team to team, too. I mean, if you're an elite team, sometimes you want to get those guys that you can develop over the next couple of years. And sometimes when you're positioned that, hey, you've got to start winning ball games like Hamilton, like Montreal, you're trying to get those guys who you can plug into the lineup right away. When you look at the Ticats draft last year, I mean, pretty successful draft when you have guys like Connor McGuff and, and Justin Vaughn, guys who not necessarily stepped into a starting role, but really provided some solid Canadian depth. And as we all know, more often than not, the team that wins the Grey Cup is always going to have that great group of Canadian players, and if not the best group of Canadian players. So I think the Ticats have to enter this draft to say, listen, these aren't going to be the superstars of the league, but they're going to be important cogs in our wheel whether it's on offense or defense or even on special teams these guys have to step in immediately not only challenge for jobs but in some cases you know win some starting jobs if they draft an o-lineman number one overall you know the pressure is going to be on both the cats and that individual to replace a ryan bombin or knock out you know another person on that offensive line although it'll be hard to do so with revenberg and filer in the middle uh, but there's going to be, you know, some pressure on both sides to make that work right away. Well, at least at least play regularly, even if you're not a starter. Sure, or contribute yeah. this year. All right. Uh, still with the draft, we only have a few minutes left here, but I want to ask you this: We we know that the CFL draft is never in a trillion years going to end up being like the NFL draft. The NFL draft a week or so ago is uh, how how do you even describe it? It's like the circus comes to. Uh, I don't. Know. It's it's just it's crazy. It's insane. Yeah. They have they had the the draft at the at uh, the Dallas Cowboys stadium, and there were a hundred thousand people, I think, something like that, inside the stadium watching a draft. Yeah, it's it's bonkers how that works, and it's such a production. Everything else, we know that's not what the CFL draft is going to be. Should it be more like that though, or at least? Should there be attempts be made, or is a quaint, quiet, in-studio kind of thing that they do, is that sufficient in this league for interest building and everything else? Well, I think if you're a hardcore CFL fan, you're, you're watching, you're listening, you're reading, you're following what's happening, not only through the course of the offseason, but certainly tonight, because if you're a fan of your team, you want to see who your team drafts. But what the NFL draft really does a great job of is hooking those you know, those non-hardcore fans, because, you know, you have pre-draft parties, you have contests, you have mock drafts, and I know there's a little bit of that in the CFL, but it's to such a small degree in comparison. Um, I I think what the league is doing is fine. I think there's always an area of of improvement. And one suggestion that I would have is have the top, you know, 50 draft picks uh, or, or at least eligible players come into uh, whatever stadium you want to do it or whatever arena or, or intimate gathering place you want to do it on or in and, uh, and, and broadcast from there or have a show from there and uh, spruce it up a little bit. Right now it's just to uh, hit and miss. I know they, they have uh, you know some of the top picks uh, doing interviews and stuff like that, but I think they really 
there's an opportunity to blow it up even bigger. Well, it's Obviously, very Spartan. That comes with a cost, it's, but... v- it's very Spartan right now, and it exists, which is still a step ahead of where it was four or five years ago, where it was really like it was just oh, an yeah. online thing. They've definitely made improvements. But when you look at that NFL draft and you see, again, you're not going to match it, but you see some of the things you might be able to do to just bring it up to a level where you can really create some excitement in the offseason, boy, it seems like it, it is still an opportunity lost. So, yeah, similar to what the league does with its award show, which has really uh, been improved over the last number of years, I think they can go that route is huddle all these guys, top 20, top 10, whatever the case is. And uh, I think you can really boost not only the image of the league, but boost the profiles of some of these guys who are getting drafted as well. Well, that's the last thing I was going to ask you about, because it becomes difficult when you go to the NFL, or when you watch, not go to, when you watch the NFL draft, they have high-definition, slow-motion, isolation shots of every single player. I don't care if you're drafted number 700. I don't know have, I know they don't have 700 picks, but if you're the 700th guy on the rankings and someone picks you, they've got that film on you that they can show on TV this is an odd situation because you've got the one, the company, that the, the network that is showing and covers the CFL and is covering the draft doesn't have the rights to college football in Canada. And so they don't really have a whole lot of the film. And some of the stuff they do have is grainy Skype quality stuff. It There has to be, it seems to me that whoever's going to do Canadian football, Rick, network wise, should do it from top to bottom. Figure it out if you're the CIS, get involved with the CFL and say, we're all in this together. So you can have a draft like this and you can have players with film. You can do these things. Spreading it out just to me doesn't make any sense. It hurts. Definitely. And there's another thing you can do too if you're the CFL. And I think this would be a smart move, I'm, although I'm not sure the other network would want to go for it, is that you open it up a la the NFL. They have Fox and ESPN and CBS and ABC and NBC. You have all these networks showing, promoting your sport. Uh, here in Canada, we have one. And if you opened it up to you know both sports networks uh, on TV, I think, A, you get greater exposure. Maybe one network takes one division, the other one takes the other, or they flip-flop between however they want to make it work. I think there's opportunity, once again, to, to grow this game and, and showcase not only today's stars, but those of the future as well. Yeah, uh, th- there is. I mean, there's potential here, and especially if they do end up ever getting that tenth team out on the East Coast. It, at that point, you have to, you just have to make it work somehow. That way, it, it it doesn't to me. There's too many opportunities for this to grow to be gone that are gone, and there's too many opportunities to let this thing slide. So anyway, uh, Rick Zamperin will be down at Tim Hortons Field. You can follow him on Twitter. You can follow him at CHML. He will be doing updates. Uh, you can go on the website. I'm sure uh, pretty much anywhere you. Can can think of that's where Rick will be for the next few hours down at Tim Hortons Field. Ticats draft do, is it right at the stroke of eight, or will it be a few minutes after? Uh, it'll be a few minutes after. They got to do their preamble stuff, so uh, we'll we'll probably get to it at about ten after or so. Check Twitter at ten after eight, or listen <laughs> here at about ten after eight, and you will uh, you will hear from Rick. You'll know who the Ticats took, sir. Enjoy the time down there. Enjoy. I understand they have a large surf and turf spread laid out for the media yes. in attendance. Can't wait for it. <laughs> my tongue is slightly in my cheek, but anyway, enjoy your night down there. We will uh, we'll hear from you later on. All right, take care, Scott. That is Rick Zamperin. I didn't know if they were feeding them tonight down there. I didn't know how many people were going to show up, whether Rick got a good meal or not out of it. Ben says if there is, Rick should run some back here. Yeah, between the first and sixth draft pick, he should make a, a run back to the office. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.